When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think one of the things that this sort of highlights is that's one of the problems is that you've got finance credit teams and you've got supply chain procurement teams that are working in their own silos. And the thing with supply chain and ethical sourcing, I think that we think is really important is they need to be working together because this all is married and integrated together. And so this is where a big problem is. Have you ever thought about using a credit risk analysis to help you in the fight against forced labor, human trafficking, and modern slavery. In this podcast, I visit with Regina Bahala and Steve Carpenter from Credit Safe, who can explain how you can do so. It's an important issue, and I know you'll enjoy this episode. Are you interested in the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance? If so, check out my great new podcast series, Adventures in Compliance, where I go through each story. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and today we have double trouble. So, we have Ragini Bala, Bahala, excuse me, and Steve Carpenter from Credit Safe. But we're going to talk about not only Credit Safe, but the fight against forced labor. I teach a class in law school, and this was the topic last night. So, I was really interested to hear what you guys are going to have to bring to this conversation. So, first of all, welcome and thank you both so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks no for problem. having us. Yeah. Could you, could you all introduce yourself, tell us about your professional backgrounds and your current roles? Okay, so uh, yeah, I'll go first. I'm Steve Carpenter. I'm based in Toronto, Canada, and I'm the country manager of Credit Safe, Credit Safe Canada. I've been with Credit Safe for roughly 20 years, and basically we specialize in working with credit managers, finance managers, supply and chain, managers, procurement managers, in all sorts of their business practices, how they onboard customers, how they onboard new vendors, processes, steps, background, due diligence checks, that type of thing. So based in Canada, now prior to that, I'm from the UK, but traveled all over the world with Credit Safe, setting up our operations across Europe, Japan, US as well. So yeah, day to day, I'm speaking to a lot of professionals in the sort of supply chain and credit space about their policies and procedures that they have. And my name is Ragini Bala. I am head of content and PR for Credit Safe, focusing on the North America region. So my actual background is actually I spent about five years working in the supply chain area. So I, my first job out of university at the age of 20 was I was inspecting the factories that are producing apparel, textiles for major U.S. brands like Saks, Kmart. Walmart, Kate Spade, and I was traveling to all of these factories all over Asia, Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, and looking at if there was forced labor, if there was child labor, looking at how they were paying their employees, making sure it was according to the local labor laws. So I have a lot of that firsthand experience. And then I've been with Credit Safe for coming up on almost a year. And I really focus on content, building that story around everything that we do and PR as well. So could you tell us about the fight against forced labor and child labor in the supply chain? 
Steve, do you want to maybe start by sharing a little bit about what you know about the law? So there's an interesting new bill in Canada. It's called Bill S211, which is basically a new bill introduced by the Canadian government, which feels like it's Canada's commitment to how they fight child labour and forced labour in the company supply chains. And this is going to impact all companies. Primarily, it's going to be companies in the goods goods industries, not services, as a starting point. It's coming into effect on the 1st of January 2024, with first filing requirements for companies by the 31st of May 2024. So it's a really interesting one. It feels like, as I say, this is Canada playing catch-up, because there's lots of other countries that do this already, all across the UK, Germany, France, Australia, parts of the US. These type of bills are already in place. So this is Canada's take on the law. As I say, it's a really interesting one, and we're speaking to more and more of our customers at the moment about how they're going to fulfill these new requirements, processes they've got to go through. Because, again, it's the type of thing that we see compliance in ESG has been a hot topic for a while, but it's a very young market with things like credit information that we specialize in is a very mature market. There's lots of reporting requirements from public and private companies, whereas anything to do with ESG, ethical sourcing, compliance... It's a much younger market. It's a lot more vague. So even though companies are having to now report and show steps that they're going through, it's really not that easy to get data on companies and understand who you're dealing with. So it's a work in progress. And it's something, as I say, we're working with companies every day to figure out how they put these processes in place. So let me tell you why I was so excited to visit with you guys. And you just hit on it, Steve, because I've not seen anyone put credit risk against the fight, and I'm going to broaden it out to human trafficking, modern slavery, forced labor, sort of all of those concepts. How has credit risk been able to wed what you guys have done and done for, with you, Steve, over 20 years to bring this to this modern 2020 scourge? Yeah, it's a... So it's a really interesting one. As I say, it feels like this is something that's totally new. And just to give you a little bit of context, like through the Credit Safe applications, through our website, through our API, through integrations with big ERP systems that companies use, you can pull data pretty much on any private company in the world. Depending on where that company is, you can pull things like financial statements, ultimate beneficial ownership, who the officers and principals of the company are. You can look at the profit loss statements, their balance sheet. You can look at shareholders. You can look at the credit score. So you can even see if the if there's an officer of a company, you can see all the other companies that person is currently an officer of, has been historically an officer of. So you can get a feel for how has that officer performed running other companies. But in the ESG space, there just isn't anything like that. Like, the gut feeling is that companies like the big four accounting firms, they're auditing companies every single day, private companies all over the world for their financial reporting requirements. It's going to become more and more prevalent where they're going to be auditing companies for this ESG supply chain type data. And then our goal as credit is we want to integrate that into our credit information. So not only are you looking at the financial strength of a company, the background of a company, you're also going to be looking at the ESG parts of the company, the ethical sourcing, the full supply chain as well. So that's a it's a route we're taking. It's something that's really exciting to have all of that data consolidated into one place. Wow. I'm almost dumbfounded because <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And I guess the question I have is when you sit down across from a customer, potential customer, client, do they understand how credit safe 
and your, I don't want to say routine work, but the work you do and the services you provide, the information you provide, do they understand this is a natural extension and it's an integral part now of what they have to comply with as me, Mr. Manufacturing, Canadian Manufacturing Company, because of these new laws and you're able to bring them a solution to a problem that may not have existed for them, at least legally until recently, but now you're stepping forward with here's the problem, but guess what? We can deliver you guys a solution. Definitely, and I think as well, it's definitely a part of like within a company, excuse me, within a company who is responsible for this. So in our typical industry, if you're talking to a credit manager or a finance manager, and the primary objective of using CreditSafe is if I send out, if I ship goods and I send an invoice to get paid on 30 days, am I gonna get paid? If I am gonna get paid, how late am I gonna get paid or am I gonna get paid on time? And what's the likelihood that company is going to go bankrupt or become insolvent? Supply chain management, it's a different person within the organization who's normally responsible for that. And all of these new government laws and bills, those are not typically aimed at a credit manager or a finance manager. It's going to be a compliance manager, a procurement manager, somebody who's responsible for that piece. And ultimately, we see these new laws. They all have to, all the reporting has to be signed off by the board of the company. So the first thing is, we're trying to encourage our customers who is the person that's going to be responsible inside your organization for doing this, for putting these reports together and making sure you're following the due diligence process when onboarding new vendors and new suppliers. But we are 100%, we're getting more and more questions from our customers now saying, well, how can you support us with these new laws? How can you support our different departments doing this as well? And ultimately, it's much easier if you've got a similar process, like most companies, 90% of companies, even small companies, have credit policies. So they have a credit policy for onboarding a new customer. The customer has to meet these thresholds. They have to be able to pay on time. We have to get trade references of customers or suppliers they've dealt with to see how they pay them. Do they pay them on time? Are they good customers? To have a similar process for onboarding new suppliers and new vendors, most big companies have that. But lots of smaller companies, sometimes it's a wing and a prayer when onboarding new suppliers. So to have a proper policy that they flow through, like a credit policy, that's what we're pushing with our customers as well. And you're right, it's something that's great to have an integrated approach, but it is always, or 90% of the time, it's a different person, a different contact point within an organization we're speaking to. And I think just to jump in there, I think one of the things that this sort of highlights is that's one of the problems is that you've got finance credit teams and you've got supply chain procurement teams that are working in their own silos. And the thing with supply chain and ethical sourcing, I think that we think is really important is they need to be working together because this all is married and integrated together. And so this is where a big problem is because when we're talking to credit managers, they're saying, I'm not really thinking about supply chain due diligence, but you're still deciding. You've got supply chain folks deciding which vendors to choose. You're deciding if they're going to be approved from a financial perspective, but then you're not really having that discussion of what about the ethical sourcing and the regulatory compliance. You've got then another department coming in, which is usually legal or a compliance department. So you've got all these different departments that are doing their own thing. And when the right hand isn't talking to the left hand, what you're going to have happen is there's going to be these things that fall through the crack. And then you're going to have more violations. And with this new law, every violation can result in a 250000 Canadian dollar fine per violation, which that's if you've done something wrong, but also you can be charged those fines if you've got misleading information in your reports, if the information you include in those reporting requirements is false. 
So it is, I think just think it's about really important that all these different departments are working closely together. So one of my roles as a podcast host, as I tell people, is I want your people to talk to my people. <laughs> and yeah. my people are compliance people. And your people, at least part of your people, are credit risk managers or CFOs or another type of department. So having you guys talk to compliance professionals, this is exactly what compliance professionals need to hear and need to understand. And more importantly, you need to understand that there's a solution available. And that solution may be to get up or either get out of their office and walk down the hall and talk to their CFO and see if they're using credit safe. Yeah. Or it may be maybe get on a Zoom call, but it is incumbent on the compliance function to not simply understand the requirements and parameters, as you've just outlined, Regina, but also see what is available on an integrated approach as a business solution. And that's what I hear you saying, Steve. This is a business issue. Yeah. And this is a business solution to a business issue, but now with a new Canadian law, does this Canadian law, let's explore that a little bit. Does it impact all Canadian companies or is it limited to a certain sector or sectors? So initially it's limited to a certain sector. It's, it's focused on government agencies. So government agencies have to follow these standards. All public companies listed on any Canadian stock exchange. And then it's going to be all Canadian companies I think I've got it written down here. It's if they've got over 20 million Canadian dollars of assets in Canada, 40 million plus in annual sales, or 250 employees or more. So if they meet two out of those three criteria, then they apply for these new laws. But it's the type of thing, this is a starting point. And this is initially, this is a company selling goods, not services. But you can imagine this is a starting point. This is probably going to change. And it always starts with the bigger companies that have to report then it will probably filter down to smaller companies as it becomes more mature as well. So it's the type of thing that most companies who are aware of this new law should put some sort of framework in place now anyway. So as that law then filters down and it's enforced for smaller companies, they'll already have a sort of practice in place for when that comes as well. And I think as well, like most companies we talk to, as I said, everybody has their credit policy when onboarding new customers. It's felt like compliance forced labor, child labor, that type of thing. It's always been a little bit of a box ticking exercise. Companies will say, I've gone through this process, I've done this and this, but nobody's really taking it that seriously. So these type of laws, I think they're brilliant because of course it's primarily a humanitarian law that's coming in, but it's going to force companies to take this seriously and to make it awareness within companies to go through the proper training processes as well. So yeah, I think that's a really positive, positive piece of it. And I know Rodney, you We've talked previously, you've worked yeah. in this space previously and you've visited like factories across Asia, Turkey, places like that, where you've seen this with your own eyes and the sort of impact yeah, that yeah. this has. And it, it, that tick box exercise point you make, Steve, is just spot on. And it's also something that we actually did some research on recently. And it was for me, it was mind boggling and just eye opening to see that 83% of the North American companies that we surveyed in the US and Canada said, okay, we run compliance checks about once a quarter. But then when we asked, how likely are you, would you still use a supplier if they've been found to use forced labor or child labor? Take a guess how many, what percentage said, yeah, we'll still use a supplier if they've been found to be using child labor or forced labor. What do you think? 10%, 20%? 75 or 80. It was 
And that's still alarming, but it was also this weird paradox, right? You get 83% saying, yeah, we run these compliance checks once a quarter, yet 43% said, oh, I don't care if they use forced labor or child labor, essentially, I'm still going to use them. So you've got this thing where it literally looks like they're just doing it to show that they've run those compliance checks, but they're not actually taking the results of those compliance checks and using them for the purpose that they should be using, which is to decide whether or not to continue using a supplier or discontinue using a supplier. And that's the whole point. So it's this huge ironical thing where, yes, we're all doing the compliance checks because we want to make sure people see that we're doing it. But at the end of the day, is it going to factor into our decision? Is it going to change our minds at the end of the day? If we have a supplier that we really like, that delivers our goods on time, that we can get, we can get a nice big discount from? No, nope, it will not. And that to me is just, that was eye-opening. And that speaks to everything that we think is so important is that is a problem. Because at the end of the day, when you're in violation of this type of law or any laws around ethical sourcing, child labor, forced labor... Yes, there's the compliance element, the violations, the fines. But actually, what happens is you've seen most consumers these days, I think there's a study out by OpenTax that says 83% of consumers have a zero tolerance policy of use of buying anything from a brand that isn't using ethical practices. I think it's like another, I can't remember how much, but again, they're willing to spend more as well. So if you as a brand are not taking this seriously, it's not just going to result in the government fines and the violations. You're going to lose customer trust. And when you lose customer trust and loyalty, what happens? You lose the revenue that you could be getting. So this is also, this is again, going back to that, your compliance and your legal and your credit folks, you all need to be working together because it all, it's a domino effect. It all affects all of you and it affects the entire business. It's not, it's only going to hit us here. It is going to hit you all across the business. Let me pick up on that because some laws, such as the United Kingdom's Modern Slavery Act, really focus on naming and shaming, yeah. and this, as the Brits call it. But that reputational component, let me see if I can expand that a little bit further and see what your guys' thoughts are. One person explained it to me is, yeah, if I get a fine and penalty, I know what the fine is. I can reserve for it, put it on the books, disclose it, tell it to my shareholders slash investors. But if I've lost sales, that comes from the top line. And yeah. number one, I've lost that sale, so I've lost that revenue, but I may lose that revenue going forward. Yeah. And not only would that be a loss of revenue, that could be a stock dip, and it could be a variety of negative outcomes that I can't predict and I can't reserve for. So it's an unknown that I can't control. And it was actually a finance person that told me that. And they said, that's my greatest fear is an unknown I can't control. Even a finer yeah. penalty, I at least can reserve for. And yeah. once I know what it is. And so that, what you started with, Regini, was with reputational loss. I wanted to see if we played that out, would that be consistent with either the messaging you guys have, what you've seen, or where you might see all of these problems going for one of those 43% who says, hey, I understand they use unethical sourcing, but I like their products and I'm going to keep incorporated into my finished product. Yeah, yeah. Steve, do you want to jump in on this? Or do you want yeah, I'd say on that one, it's a really good point because with big companies, like the huge brands that everybody knows, of course, as you say, 
the financial penalty, $250,000, is probably just a drop in the ocean. It's, and as you say, they, they can account for that. It's the reputational damage and the impact that has on future sales, customer loyalty, stock prices, and things like that. So that's why I think the law with the name and shaming piece is really good because for big companies, big brands, it's more about that reputational damage. You have to think as well, for smaller companies, this is impacting companies with 250 employees or more, potentially. Many of those companies are not even going to be newsworthy companies. If one of those companies is in violation of these laws, it's not even going to make the news because nobody even knows who that company is. It's not a consumer goods product. It may not be a big household brand. So for those type of companies, the financial penalty is going to be a bigger worry and the violations and convictions they have as well, because then, of course, the more and more companies that are using compliance and due diligence, they're now going to see this company has been in violation of these laws. Maybe it's going to stop other companies buying from them. It's going to stop other suppliers selling to them as well. So once they're in breach, there's all these other implications they have. But I agree 100%. The big household brands, it's that reputational risk and the unknown variables that they're most concerned about. Yeah, and I think especially with US specifically and just North American media, the way that media is in the US and Canada, it is very much that, like you said, Tom, naming and shaming sort of culture. And so there's been articles in New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, all these other major publications like Fortune and Guardian, and they go straight into naming and shaming. You've got, especially with these clothing manufacturers, H&M and Gap, and you've seen Nike, they've all been lambasted in the media. I think actually, I almost feel like the bigger brands are almost, it feels like they're not taking it serious enough because they're constantly being shamed in the media, but it's nothing's really changing. And I think that's part of it as well is like the bigger the company, I think the more almost, what is it, foolproof, like they almost feel like they're bulletproof. And I think they think that it doesn't matter, but it does. It's going to hit your stock price, especially if you're a public company and you're a major brand, it's going to hit your stock price. It's going to lose you actual customer sales and long-term revenue. And at the end of the day, that could end up, you could end up going down the road of Bed Bath & Beyond and having to go bankrupt because you've lost too many customers. And then you've had to try to recoup yourself financially at the end of the day. So Rini, you've been in this field for quite some time. I'm going to draw back to one of the seminal events for many Americans, which was, I think, Romani Plaza was the name. It was the place, the office or the building in Bangladesh that collapsed, where it turned out that numerous U.S. companies were having yeah. clothes made or, or manufactured. And coming forward from that day, which really opened the eyes to many Americans because of the, a great amount of publicity, and then moving forward with the legal initiatives you've seen in the United Kingdom, the Germany Supply Chain Act, and then this Canadian Act, we see, I want to say, an entire ecosystem around ethical sourcing and forced labor. And part of that is the regulatory component. And that may be part that you saw missing, which now companies really will have to pay. And 250000 per violation, that can add up very quickly. Yeah. yeah. So I want to focus on the reporting requirements. Is that public recording as in a stock filing, uh, not a stock filing, but a, an annual stock report, shareholder report, or is that a reporting requirement to the government? It's It has to go into a registry, which I believe, and Steve, jump in if I'm wrong, but it needs to be, it's going to have to actually be posted on the company's public website as well. Yeah, <clears throat> so there's two requirements to all companies by the 31st of May in Canada have to basically submit a report to the ministry. 
they also need to make that report publicly available in a prominent place on their website. So those are the two requirements. I've actually looked at, this morning I looked at the Australian registry. So you can go to the Australian registry for forced or child labour and it's open access. You can go in, you can type in a company name. I think there's about 8,000 or 9,000 companies who've submitted their reports so far to the Australian registry. And when I look at them, they're not overly onerous. Like the typically seven pages to 15 pages, the ones I read. So I read five or six this morning, a maximum of 15 pages. And again, the government have provided guidelines about what needs to go into those reports. So it's things like, you know, you can upload your policies. Do you have a corporate governance policy? Do you have vendor onboarding policies and things like that? So you can show the policies you have. You can also show what training you put your staff through. So you can put a section in about training. You can put a section in about supplier contracts, remediation. So for example, if anything does go wrong and you find out that there is some sort of violation in your supply chain, what remediation processes you have in to resolve that as well. Then probably the bit with credit safe come in is the due diligence piece. So it's what steps do you go through when you're onboarding new suppliers to make sure that they don't have convictions or enforcement against them, that type of thing. And what type of audit do you keep? So again, when we're speaking to our customers, we're saying, this is what you should do. You should go to this portal. You should search for the company. When you search for this company, you're actually searching against seven or 8,000 different global enforcement lists. So it's not just child labor or forced labor. This includes sanctioned entities. It includes politically exposed people. It includes terrorist watch lists, OFAC lists. So it's all of the big sort of watch lists globally, which include these labor infraction lists. And keep an audit, simply download a PDF to say, on this date, we onboarded this supplier. On this day, at this time, these are the reports we pulled to make sure that we check them for any convictions or enforcements. And then we go through a monitoring process. So once a quarter, we will look at these companies to make sure nothing's changed, make sure there's no new enforcements against them. So that's a relatively straightforward piece to go through that process. I know some big companies will outsource like on-site visits. Rodney, part of your previous role was you were traveling dimensions like Turkey to Asia, and you were doing site visits to factories on behalf of big global brands to make sure that they were following these practices. There was no safety issues. There was no child labor being used. And I imagine lots of big companies will go those extra steps to make sure they have that audit. But for lots of smaller companies, just doing simple due diligence checks and checking these global enforcement lists is enough. As I said, it's not a hugely onerous process. I'd imagine this is going to change. For example, in Canada, it's a new law. It's only coming into effect on the 1st of January next year. It's probably going to be a work in progress where that will change. Reporting requirements will change. The government have put out some relatively vague guidelines on reporting. Um, Again, I'd imagine they'll give more details closer to the time, but I'd advise just visiting the Australian Ministry page and um, we can post a link in the in the podcast as well. And um, you can go there, you can look at other reports companies in Australia have issued. Obviously, there's differences between Australian laws and Canadian laws, but it'll give a good framework of the type of information that can be put. Yeah, I, mean, I think it, it's just a bit of, for me, it's like the evolution of, how, of ethical sourcing and how important it is. When I was visiting, doing these on-site visits at factories around the world, India, Pakistan, China, Turkey, you name it, I've been there. And we would spend a couple of hours in each factory. We were interviewing employees. We were reviewing legal documents, financial documents, going through their payroll, all of that. And, you know, we would then have to create this, like it was sometimes 15 to 20 page report that would then be sent to 
the manufacturer, the brand that we were working for. And it had all these different elements around what were the different violations we found? How serious were there? What are our recommendations? Do we, what's our recommendation for the next steps? Should you completely stop working with this factory? Or is it a few things that if you give them a bit of guidance and you work with them, they can fix it within two to three months. And it really varied, but I think part of this also is I think brands, any brand, whether they're in Canada or any country, the other piece of this is, yes, brands need to be doing their due diligence and protect the integrity of their supply chain. But if this is ever going to change and if we're going to stop seeing millions of children working illegally in factories around the world, the other way that's going to change is if you've got the government of Canada or the U.S. or other countries and they're working with the governments of those countries like India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and China and really working with them to figure out how do we create change because it's never going to stop if we're being honest I don't want to sound skeptical, but when you think about these countries, the reason that these factors are doing this is because they're, it's their way of surviving. It's their way of making a living. And I can tell you, I used to sit there and I was 20, 21 when I was doing this. And I was sitting in front of 50-year-old, 60-year-old men who just were almost flabbergasted that I was giving them these recommendations. And I would explain to them the long-term implications that it would have for their business. I would explain, if you don't correct this, not only is this just unethical, but you're going to lose the business from Saks or from Kate Spade or from Kmart. And if they're, if you're relying on them for 80% of your income, this is going to be a financial, like it's going to break you financially. So you need to be thinking about this from all angles. And I think that's where I would love to start seeing like some of the governments within the US and Canada really starting to work with governments in India and Bangladesh and China, and really starting to figure out how do we work together? Because I think right now it's this one edge and we're 100%, I think we've got solutions that can help. And this is where tech, I think, is going to be really powerful for brands. And this is, again, that sort of piece of how do you use tech for good? I think this is part of, that's part of how we see this is tech can do good with this. So guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you all both, if our listeners wanted more information on yourselves, Credit Safe, or really any of the topics that we touched on, what might be the best place or places for them to go? Yeah, I can jump in. So I would say if you go to www.creditsafe.com slash forward slash US forward slash EN, you will find a lot of different content that we create around supply chain, risk management, credit risk. And we really try to create a lot of different content. We create original research. We actually create blogs and incorporate insights from different industry experts as well. So I would recommend going to that. Yeah, All right. and, and I mentioned as well, Tom, I think we'll post a link in the I'll podcast share. as well. So the Australian ministry, so companies can look at the type of reporting those companies would be doing. We'll post a link to the Credit Safe website and the research that we've done, we've done on this as well. Yeah. Thanks very much for taking the time to visit with me, and I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I'd like to tell you about two great new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, Adventures in Compliance, where I look at the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, leadership, compliance, and business ethics. I'm doing all of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as the novels. Another is Report from ECI 2023, where I interviewed 
speakers, guests, and participants at ECI 2023. I know you'll enjoy both of these new podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.